Hello, and welcome to the Mage, the Hero Described podcast. This is a show for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series. I'm your host, Kevin Hawkins, and in this episode, I'll be reviewing issue number 14 of Mage 3, The Hero Denied. And um, so this is it. The next to last, the penultimate issue of The Hero Denied, and frankly, of the entire Mage comic series. I mean... Wow. Uh, from <laughs> waiting around in the in the late 80s and early 90s for Mage 2 to drop who knows when. Um, and then, you know, the, uh, the wait between Mage 2 to Mage 3 unexpectedly uh, finally coming out. It's been an amazing ride. And needless to say, spoilers will abound. So if you haven't read this issue or any other Mage comics... And uh, Lord knows I have no idea why you'd be listening to this if you haven't. Well, you've been warned. And all right, let's get on with this episode and on to the issue. When issue 13 ended, Kevin, Miranda, and Mirth had arrived at the Umbra Sprite Citadel. As it truly appears in the middle of a gruesome desert comprised of the ground-up bones of the Umbra Sprite's victims, and having defeated a two-headed dragon guarding the entrance to the citadel, the trio entered the towering structure finally, seeking to rescue uh, Kevin's wife and son, Magda and Hugo. Now, Magda and Hugo had managed to escape their posh prison cell, and they had incapacitated the righteous, somewhat bondage-clad muscle, Olga. The intense battle-driven Gracklethorn who had discovered them in uh, the Umber Sprite's office. Magda had restrained the attacking Thorn with magical steel bands, and the two had ducked into a closet to escape detection, only to find themselves in a large rocky cavern instead of the supply closet, which they they had expected. And, of course, the big reveal at the end of issue 13, when the goddamn Fisher King himself walked willingly right into the hands of the villains and herned himself over to Carol. Yeah, I mean, wow. And, um, you know what, I'm going to be referencing the Gracklethorns uh, in this uh, in this episode, I did not go back and double check names against thorns, uh, just like their brothers who preceded them. Uh, with the exception of hairstyles, they all tend, they all look alike underneath those wigs. So I'm hoping that I'm getting everybody's name correct. But if I'm not, hopefully the context of the storyline and what I'm talking about will make it clear. So consider this. For a moment, the Umbra Sprite foretold, or perhaps clairvoyantly um, had seen or sensed a coming together of the three, right? Kevin Matchstick, the Fisher King, and some unknown third force, which seemingly pushed itself upon the Umbra Sprite earlier in the series and led to the Umbra Sprite's discorporation or transformation into a pile of shadow snakes. According to the Umber Sprite, 
for its plans to come to fruition, this convergence must happen. Uh, the Umbrus Bright had pretty much told uh, some of the Gracklethorns, the Gracklethorns, that there will be much damage and death, but the Umbrus Bright believes that it is through this coming together and this carnage that it, the Umbrus Bright, will ultimately succeed. So Kevin is entering the Umbrus Bright Citadel. The Fisher King has effectively turned himself in, and that leaves a big question mark over this third entity. Based on evidence to date, I think that must be Emil, the Umbrasprite's Grackleflint's son, committer of patricide, and ultimately the failed villain of Mage 2, the hero defined. But maybe not. Maybe this mysterious person or entity is someone or something completely different. Maybe it's someone we've seen before and totally overlooked. Could it be the motorcycle-riding hunter? He seems to have no allegiance specifically to the Empress Sprite, and definitely has has played a significant role earlier in the series and as, as part of Kevin's story. And similarly, of course, there's the question about the third mage. Okay, so moving on. This issue opens with Alexi and uh, Sasha, I believe, arriving in response to uh, the otherworldly screech let out by Olga upon being restrained by Magda. They, they revive her and break her loose of the bonds, and in true Gracklethorn manner, they immediately start to argue amongst themselves and insult each other over who let themselves be bested by a mortal, so forth and so on. And fortunately, um, as rather as, as Sasha and, uh, and Olga Bicker, um, Alexi, I believe it's Alexi, amuses herself with some wicked dance moves apropos of nothing except perhaps the Gracklethorns Association, you know, to the Spice Girls, because they're the Spice Gracks. The argument is interrupted by Carol, who enters the room holding the Fisher King high above her head. She throws him to the ground and breaks his lone crutch, that, that crutch just gleefully, and she's declaring him this. As he's ragged, he's crippled, he's weak and contemptible. And while I've mentioned at times that Carol has been the only Gracklethorn to show signs of concern about the coming battle, uh, whether or not uh, the Gracklethorns were up to fighting against Kevin Matchstick, and possibly doubting the Empress Sprite. Right now, with their longtime quarry held captive, she is positively 100% all Team Umbra Sprite. And uh, so <laughs> some people just go whichever way the tide is turning, I suppose. We'll, we'll see if Carol has another change of heart as this story moves ahead. Remember, the she was almost, she was stunned, almost awed by the amount of power coming off of Kevin when he uh, battled the Yowler Ogre uh, earlier in the series when they witnessed that. And no doubt she'll have another opportunity to see that power on display and maybe even uh, another kind of power uh, from the Fisher King, him itself. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. There is a really nice touch 
in the panel showing her entrance into the Umbra Sprite's office, Carol's sisters all turn to her as she makes her announcement. But the black, gray, and white painting in the office that contains some kind of nasty beast has enlarged again. We talked in previous uh, episodes about how this painting, depending on who's in the room or what's going on, seems to either shrink down in size or become quite large. And it has become quite large. And the huge eyeball of whatever is constrained within or behind that frame is looking at her as well. It's clearly just looking right in her direction. Um, also much larger is one of those portal picture frames showing the red sky and the red thicket bramble from which the umber sprite reaches in to pluck dark fairies to beset upon Kevin Matchstick in the world. Now, the last time we saw them when Hugo and Magda were in the room, they were much smaller, but now they've enlarged again. There may be no specific mechanism, but it does give the room a subtle, otherworldly feel. And the Fisher King, looking 100% a throwback San Francisco hippie makes it clear that there is no need for violence. He surrenders, and it's this great line. And the way it's delivered, you, you can almost hear him in this very, you know, relaxed, uh, laid-back manner, like, I'm, I surrender, I'm at your mercy, or, you know, lack thereof. A, a nod to their absolute malevolence. They're just vicious and merciless. So, you know, he's, he's at their mercy, which, of course, they have none. Uh, so, but his calm reaction is both humorous and puzzling. He is completely chill about his situation, and from all appearances, it is not a good position to be in. And also, it occurred to me that this is a strange appearance for the Fisher King. The last time we saw the Fisher King was in Philadelphia, during Mage the Hero Discovered, and at that time, he was a, a lame cat. And then transformed into a more traditionally dressed and appearing uh, beggar, just, you know, street dweller, nowhere near the flamboyance of this Fisher King's leather vest and tie-dye shirt and hairstyle. And speaking of that shirt, the peace sign on his shirt can't go without comment. In a world where heroes wear their symbols on their t-shirts, Kevin, his bolt, Joe Fat his lightning bolt, Kirby had his lion's head shield, and so on, and also others have their personal power symbols evident as well. Magda's star beauty mark, Miranda's heart on her shirt, and, um, and at times projecting uh, hearts manga-esque near her word bubbles or actions at times. So, this peace symbol isn't just a, a sign of the Fisher King being a hippie. This is his sign. This is his signifier. The Fisher King is tied to peace. Now, I'm not going to cover this completely chronologically. In these last few issues, it's become clear that more and more of these events in this issues in these issues are happening, if not precisely at the same time, damn close to it. So, I'm going to spend some time and finish up with the story as it pertains to the Fisher King and the Gracklethorns for this issue just all at once. Not necessarily going through things exactly as they happen in the, in the comic. 
the Gracklethorns continue to debate over whether the Fisher King, um, you know, uh, what to do with him, what the deal is, as the as the big bad whatever it is in the picture frame clearly continues to watch, the eyeball having having definitely shifted position to to follow the action, and Olga's thoughts are pretty much along the lines of the readers. Why did he turn himself in? Carol informs the others that he had told her the quote moment of confluence is at hand and that he had come to bear witness and that is that is very similar terminology if not the exact terminology that the umbra sprite used earlier uh, issues ago when the umbra sprite came to its own revelation uh, about the the convergence of the three so whatever coming together of forces the umbra sprite foresaw or felt was clearly also felt by the fisher king and if the Umbra Sprite is the current incarnation of ultimate darkness, and the Fisher King is the current ultimate earthly incarnation of, of light, it would make sense that the two of them might both sense or feel this. And that may leave Kevin and the mysterious third entity as some kind of middle ground in this gathering of polar forces. As the sisters argue over what to do with him, including testing him with the vicious fairy host, the Sluashi, Olga continues to insist that he's probably just some spaced-out hippie. And Sasha was the same way when she took one look at Kevin Matchstick and proclaimed him to essentially be a joke based on what she made of his physical appearance. But the Fisher King's demeanor throughout the encounter, you know, so far kind of supports her assertion. Even though he's being surrounded by essentially these vicious killing machines, he has this big goofy smile on his face throughout the entire encounter. Carol, however, insists that his ability to see through her human disguise and to see her as a Gracklethorn means that he must be the Fisher King. And at this point, he groovily informs them that Everything that they're discussing, Fisher King, Spaced Out Hippie, the embodiment of an ancient power, all are appearances, and appearances can be deceiving. That the Gracklethorns are wrapped up in semantics, man, names and faces, and then he invites them to take their pick. And, damn, Matt fills the next page with eight different amazing incarnations of the power embodied by the Fisher King, changing race, sex, and even species. And these radically different interpretations are each beautiful in their own right. You can look at these at these characters and and think, God, I'd I'd love to see this character's story. The level of detail falls somewhere in the middle ground of Wagner's range of, of detail. And each face is brought to life um, amazingly by Brendan Wagner's colors. Now, if you're not aware of this, you can order prints of um, covers and some pages of Mage 3 at brennanwagner.com. Last I checked, you could get three over, if you get three oversized prints, you get the fourth for free for something in the range of $60, something like that. I've already ordered a batch myself. And if this comes available, I think it could be on my short list to order. 
mean, why? Because besides the amazing line art and coloring, and and I've got a, I'm curious also with one of them. There's some great tattoo work on one of the characters, and I'm I'm curious if any of that was in the line art or all of that was done during the coloring stage. But there's a remarkable and huge story being told on this panel that has nothing to do with Mage specifically. So so let's go through these as they loosely follow a a clever um a clever kind of descending rank by title, going from king to queen, princess, lord, and so on into less aristocratic titles. As the Fisher King just said, this is all just faces and names. Take your pick. So while these named ranks may change, there's really no actual difference in significance of these different forms of these different names. This is all one force, one incarnation, many appearances. But unlike the heroes we've met in Mage, who are often ongoing reincarnations of an individual heroic spirit, the Fisher, can, the Fisher King can apparently change appearance and identity at will. I would presume that the aspect of lameness specific to the Fisher King is specific to that identity. Now, I spent some time researching into each of the names presented on this page. Some have very clear mythical identities tied to them. Others, like the Blossom Princess, the Beautiful Dreamer, the Alma Mater, seem more evocative and intended to reinforce that the essence embodied by the Fisher King transcends time, culture, and mere physical appearance. Uh, you know, yes, there is a Blossom Princess type of organization uh, for young ladies uh, that seems to be an excellent way for them to build uh, social skills, networking, and and so forth and so on, and, and much beyond that, uh, political skills as well. Alma Mater, um, you know, certainly makes a reference to, um, to, to schools and to, um, I don't know, to organizations. Um, you know, some of these, quite frankly, might just be beyond me. They're a little, but overall, again, what this allows us to do is move from the purely mystical and almost even primitive and agricultural all the way up into the modern uh, by the time we get up to Alma Mater, which has a very sleek, sophisticated look to it compared to some of the earlier, uh, the other embodiments that might be a little more um, rooted in, in early human history. So here are some details about the mythical roots that may or may not apply to some of the entities featured on this page. And first, let's start with the Fisher King. Now, the Fisher King in Arthurian legend is the last keeper of the Holy Grail. And I'm going to give some detail here, but there are so many different levels and interpretations and directions you can go with the Fisher King. I'm going to go down a direction that seems to most closely tie to the mage story at large, as well as some of the some of the meaning, I think, that's going on inside this page here. So those stories vary widely, but in all of them, he is wounded and typically he's unable to stand. He sits fishing, hence his name, and awaits a noble visitor who may be able to heal him by asking a certain question. Um, and usually that question has something to do with, uh, with the nature of his injury or of a, of a collection of objects that pass by. 
uh, often in front of those who visit him. The connection between the Fisher King and the Light is probably best explained through his guardianship of the Grail. The Holy Grail, it's been described as a cup or a dish with the power to provide happiness, eternal youth, or infinite sustenance. And while not a holy object per se at first, in the late 12th century, Robert de Boron wrote that the Grail was Jesus's vessel from the Last Supper, which Joseph of uh, Arimathea used to catch Christ's blood at the crucifixion. And so with this, the Grail moved from being a miraculous object to a holy object. And since it is an object sought by members of King Arthur's court, quested for by the knights, the term Holy Grail is often used to describe an elusive object or goal of great significance. Now, in early versions of the Fisher King mythos, there are hints that his kingdom and lands suffer as he does. And this was a common belief about kings. The well-being of the king and their country, indeed specifically their land, and the bounty that came forward from it, those were closely tied together. Scholars have suggested that the Fisher King's wound was connected to the fertility of the land and directly tied to reducing it to a barren wasteland. In fact, there is strong evidence that the injury to the king's thigh or groin, the type of wound the Fisher King is said to have suffered, is a common polite substituted reference for a man's wounded or indeed lost penis. For this to happen to a king, directly tied by his health to the land, it is easy to see why the Fisher King would rule over a barren wasteland, and to heal the king would mean to bring life back to a desolate land. Uh, to a certain degree, this could also, you know, an act of healing like that, one might say that would fulfill a cycle of, um, of the seasons as well, going in, you know, land going barren in the winter and then bringing them back again. It's not necessarily fully there. It's a little bit implied, and I think it ties into, in, into some of these other characters on this page. Most notably, the Harvest Queen, and this is a little less precise. Harvest Queen is a common title at agricultural celebrations that tend to coincide with the end of the harvest and summer as we move into fall and prepare for winter. But ultimately, that harkens back to goddesses of agriculture and harvest. Various forms of the harvest goddess have been celebrated by cultures around the world, and it is typical of this archetype to experience a form of death or withdrawal as part of the cycle bringing forth food and life. Um, there's even, I think, on the Grecian side, you get uh, on the male side of that equation, um, Bacchus. Uh, he's, it's, you know, the, the Greeks get, get pretty, uh, pretty vicious themselves at times, and uh, he was one of the, the first symbols of a, of a god or a deity uh, dealing with the fecundity of the land, or in this case, the vine, uh, having to be sacrificed and ripped apart to continue the cycle of, um, you know, to bring, to bring the world back to life, to help bring uh, sustenance back. Then there's the Yule Lord. Yule or Yuletide is historically a German, uh, Germanic 12-day festival that corresponded with the winter solstice. Now, it is particularly connected to a phenomenon named 
the Wild Hunt, as well as the Norse god Odin. The details in the members of the Wild Hunt can vary from region to region. Tradition holds that the Wild Hunt is a ghostly nighttime horde of huntsmen that rode across the land or sky on horseback with equally ghostly hounds. And the members of this party can vary. They can be the specters of dead human huntsmen, or fairies and elves, even demons. And depending on the constituents of the horde, the leader may change as well. Most commonly, it had been Odin, but in some cases, the devil or a similar figure. Now, this may be due to Odin's loss of status with the rise of Christianity as well, that he was transformed over time, and this is a pagan god who was now over time demonized to undermine his status. Remember, this is all in, in it's basically politics, it's belief politics, uh, demonizing uh, the status of a, of a former deity. Um, then we move on to the Lotus Master. Now, this name may just be evocative and not specific to any particular real or mythical being. Uh, it's certainly a modern a more modern interpretation uh, than some of the earlier ones we get, much as the Yule Lord, who has this very interesting kind of, you know, rugged, uh, almost lumberjackish kind of, of look to him. And the Lotus Master looks very much like he's, um, you know, Buddhist punk. However, um, the founder of Tibetan Buddhism is referred to as the Lotus-born master. It is said he was incarnated as an eight-year-old child appearing in a lotus blossom floating in a lake. And stories vary widely. They include him secretly teaching a princess um, secrets of Tantra. And when the king discovered this, he tried to burn the lotus master. And the story tells that when the smoke cleared, he just sat there, still alive and in meditation. Stories like this abound. But ultimately, he uh, went on to form what is now the oldest school of Tibetan Buddhism. And this pierced, tattooed, and mohawked lotus master presented in this panel might have, have no relationship at all to the historical lotus master, but, you know, I felt I, I had to at least look into it. I'd already mentioned the alma mater. I, I think in part that might be there uh, just to... You know, add another layer of, I don't know, modern, uh, modern life and sophistication. It just has this very 19, to me, it has a very 1920s kind of feel to it in that panel. And of course, the spring chicken, which certainly may be thrown in for just sheer comic relief. Uh, you know, to say someone isn't a spring chicken is usually to mean that they're older and maybe past their prime. Uh, and also a spring chicken is someone young and likely innocent and naive. And, and while not high on the food chain, um, no pun intended, of historically sacrificed animals, chicken was certainly on the list. Typically, it was preceded by bull or ox, cow, sheep, goat, and pig. Um, but the specification of a spring chicken, uh, to me, also adds an implication of seasonal rebirth, much in line with the similar overtones from the Fisher King mythos the historical uh, fertility gods and goddesses who were implied by the Harvest Queen and so on. The Fisher King closes his series of transformations as the Harvest Queen, asking, in what form will it be easiest for you to kill me? Literally, 
offering himself itself up for sacrifice. I mentioned earlier the idea that, you know, if the Umbra Sprite is the current incarnation of ultimate darkness and the Fisher King the current ultimate earthly incarnation of ultimate light, both of these forces share something in common about how they manifest. Neither are restricted in their physical form. In Hero Discovered, the Umbra Sprite was a male uh, and also able to, at times, it took a, uh, the shape of its shade. It had its shade form. In Hero Denied, the Umbra Sprite is female. And we've even seen the Umbra Sprite in the form of shadow snakes and a vicious oily liquid, not unlike that found in the Dark Fountain. This is why I, I try to refer to the sprite as an it rather than a he or she, unless by sheer convenience or clarity regarding its current manifestation. While we see several different forms of the Fisher King here, one has to wonder to what degree the Umbra Sprite can do the same. Is it possible on demand or only in circumstances of a reincarnation, as what happened somewhere between the end of Mage 2 and the start of Mage 3? And indeed, Kevin Matchstick may have played a role in shaping the current form of the Umbra Sprite. The language is just to one side of sexual and procreative when the Umbra Sprite tells the Gracklethorns about Kevin in issue 1. None of you should underestimate the extent of his power. It was only via its bittersweet kiss, when he pierced the very depths of my darkness, that I was able to retain human form and spawn the five of you. So in some way, a very real way, the power of Excalibur, harnessed by Kevin in the final panels of Mage the Hero Defined, actually helped the Umbra Sprite take form again and give birth, or spawn, the Gracklethorns. Like how Emil was harnessing Kevin's energy to power the stone golem in Hero Defined, we see the powers of darkness feeding off of, and even thriving off the light in various ways. Um, and ultimately, for me, all this talk of light and dark polar energies of good and evil calls back to Wally Up at the end of Mage 2 when he's lecturing Kevin and pressing home this message. You've got to rise above bashing nasties. You've got to harbor the light, not condemn the dark. Only then will your path become clear. Now, one might say that as a part of raising a family, he's been doing a form of harboring the light. But I think that would be more of a micro-manifestation of this, a human-level, day-to-day version of harboring the light. At the macro level, and at the mythical level, I think Kevin has yet to take that step. I think as this story ends, that could be a critical thing to keep in mind about the ultimate showdown. And with the Fisher King and him coming into proximity, frankly, this might be the first real opportunity for him to actually harbor the light at a level of worldwide or mythic impact. Now, Olga displays the typical Gracklethorn lack of patience and perspective in response to the Fisher King's transformative display. She smacks him to the ground, breaking his glasses as she exclaims, Enough illusions! But he is downright eager to be killed. 
He's almost egging her on as he replies, Illusion, delusion, it'll all be one and the same once you kill me. And the raging Olga is about to strike him when Carol stops her, reminding her that only Mother knows the prescribed ritual to sacrifice the fisher and unleash the Age of Despair. The Gracklethorns and the Fisher King look towards the ominous black fountain as she insists that they must wait for her return. And I think that Carol really saved the day for Olga and possibly all the thorns here. I mean, the Fisher King is outright saying, come on, kill me already, it's totally groovy. And that may fit into a larger sacrificial motif, but I also think it's a trap. Way back in The Hero Discovered, in issue 15, Emil finally finds the Fisher King. It's in the shape of a cat, which he lifts up and impales on his lone remaining elbow spike. It's a really brutal scene, but to Emil's surprise, his attack causes an outburst of pure light from the Fisher King. The force literally blasts his wheelchair-bound brother Laszlo backwards, seemingly melting and disintegrating him like Raiders of the Lost Ark style. And Emil himself is badly scarred. Half his face is almost melted off. And as Emil runs away, the Fisher King changes from a cat into a human again, limping away on a single crutch. This scene, and the way it parallels the actions taking place with Kevin Matchstick at the same time in that story, is... Well, it's riveting. I mean, it's just, it's amazing visual storytelling. But for the Grackle Thorns, this scene portends great harm. It is likely that any damage attempted on the Fisher King by the Thorns would have a similar result, greatly injuring, if not outright destroying, the four remaining Grackle Thorns. The Fisher King certainly must be aware of this, and is likely playing up whatever he can to coax it to coax them into a hasty attack. So, while all of this is going on, let's check in on Magda and Hugo. And in typical magical building style, they went through a door expecting to hide in a utility closet and instead found themselves inside a huge red rock cavern with passageways connecting caves and stairways cut into the rock. Magda leaves Hugo alone as she investigates a nearby cave. Hugo takes his glasses off for a moment to rub his eyes, and it's nice to get a chance to see his whole face again, well, kind of. He's been wearing those glasses for a while, and it took me a bit to put my finger on it, but something about his face in this panel is vaguely reminiscent of mirth. I don't want to put too much into that. Part of it could just be how the lid of the magic hat comes out, somewhat evoking the swoop of mirth's hair, the blue poncho-like quality of the hoodie, and that Hugo has grown up since we first saw him in issue one. Nevertheless, it's a nice frame where we get to see another side of him uh, besides just his wide-eyed exuberance uh, that we've typically seen on display. And these magic glasses come in handy as Hugo puts them on just in time to spot an oversized blue troll or some such creature with an iron manacle clamped around one wrist. Now, perhaps this is someone's pet, or experiment out for some exercise, or maybe it is escaped itself. Hugo uses his magic shoes to run away from the sharp-toothed, blue-skinned creature, 
And as he taunts it standing upside down on the ceiling, his mother returns, and Hugo realizes that she can't see it. Hugo lets loose a magic light bulb which catches the monster in the head, disconcerting it enough, disorienting it enough, that it stumbles off the cliff and falls off into the distance. And Dave Lanfear gets to let loose in this scene in a few places, most notably Hugo's cry of surprise upon first seeing the beast and the creature's alien language symbols, which get the special treatment trailing after the monster as it falls to an unknown fate. Mother and son reunite, just in time to witness Magda's wedding ring flare up with arcing white electricity, a sign that Kevin is not only alive, but indeed very close nearby. The white lightning-like electrical crackle coming off of Magda's ring is mirrored in the first frame on the next page, where we see Kevin, a glowing bat in his hands, letting off those signature lightning crackle lines. Kevin is in mid-battle, and he is pissed off. And I know this is an action shot, the hero with the weapon in hand, but frankly, I find this to be one of the first panels, maybe one of the only panels I've seen of Kevin Matchstick that is just downright disturbing to me. Teeth gritted together, a scowl on his face, his eyes deep set in shadow under his furrowed brow. I mean, I get it. This is mad, badass, weapon-wielding Kevin Matchstick, but maybe it's just the shadow across his eyes. He looks to just one side of evil himself. I mean, out of context, you were to show that picture to somebody, they might think he was the bad guy. When he's finished, we see him, Mirth and Miranda, surrounded by at least ten fallen foes. Mirth questions Kevin's stamina and the toll that this must be taking on him, and Kevin replies that he's fine, though sometimes his hands hurt. Now, this line snuck right past me until I saw a comment on Facebook by mage fan Jen Delari, who made it perfectly clear that this is a pain all artists can relate to. Hands hurting. So great layers of meaning here between Kevin wielding Excalibur, the weapon in Mage, and Matt's own power, his artistry and writing, and the cost of, of just that manual work on you physically. Uh, by the way, Jen is the author of the webcomics Closet Space and A Wish for Wings. She's been featured in the Incantations letter column at the back of Hero Denied, and you can find out more at dolari.org. That's D-O-L-A-R-I. Kevin and Mirth have some discussions in which Mirth really seems to lean into questioning Kevin's strength and stamina, and he again repeats that what little magic he retains might not be enough should Kevin fall. And, you know, again, he refers to Kevin specifically as the Pendragon, which he's been doing a lot, and I get it, it's what Kevin is known by in heroic circles and so on. It just strikes me as a little strange coming from Mirth. After a short break, Kevin is ready to move on when he sees another monster. Before he can react, it's revealed to be Miranda, who discovered that by disguising herself as a monster, the other bad guys left her alone. And there's a nice panel where Miranda explains how she disguised herself, and you can see that she's just kind of beaming with pride, big smile, and there's a super sweet panel of father and daughter talking, pressing their foreheads together before they move out with Kevin exclaiming, that's my girl, 
and Mirth replying, so it would seem, all of them unaware that they're being observed by the blue cloak-clad imp who had previously been hanging out with the questing beast. And I'll just leave my thoughts about the imp in past episodes uh, regarding past issues. As I mentioned, much of the action in the issue seems to be happening more or less simultaneously. By now, it's obvious that all members of the Hunter, Matchstick, Pendragon family are in the same caverns, that in some way are part of the Umbra Sprite Citadel, but who knows how far apart they may be. The place is vast and dangerous. A little magic seems to be making it more likely that the family will reunite. Magda and Hugo are fighting, following the uh, guidance of her ring. The light from it is pointing them towards the source of the spark igniting it, Kevin's power. They simply have to follow it to Kevin. But it's not all beer and Skittles. Before long, the two are beset by the vicious Sluashi. Now, those were the little black flying piranha-like nasties that devoured all the Fisher King candidates earlier in the series. Now, these, these cripples had been hung out in the Red Abyss pit in cages, and the Sluashi had been set loose on them, and they were stripped down to bare bone in almost seconds by the voracious beasts. And a swarm circles the pair. Even with Cleo, Magda's familiar, flying in to help them, the three are swiftly overwhelmed, and the last panel really just, you know, barely showing Magda's and Hugo's alarmed faces through the all-encompassing darkness of the swarm completely closing in on them. It is a truly dire situation. And with that, we return to Kevin, Miranda, and Mirth, and they are confronted by another threshold guardian. According to Mirth, this is Awartak, um, the last guardian before the enemy's lair. Now, Mirth has always been our guide to what monsters Kevin and companions uh, may be facing at any given moment. Uh, that's been true since the hero discovered, and it was even shown in a flashback scene in The Hero Denied. Now, Awartak cover, uh, towers uh, four to five times over the heroic trio, and it's another great creature design. Pale face, red eyes, huge taloned hands. In, in past episodes, I've referenced how, um, how Kevin's path and mage mirrors Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. The threshold guardian in that tests the hero as they move forward to face great challenges. Typically, threshold guardians in the hero's journey block an entrance or border of some kind. In The Hero Discovered, threshold guardians included the giant Gomagog, with whom Kevin had to wrestle to pass, and of course, the dragon Krom Kruach. Uh, he had to defeat that as well to be able to pass on. Now, Kevin has already faced one threshold guardian entering the citadel, the two-headed dragon. This next menace they encounter is clearly standing blocking some stairs and the entrance into another chamber. Awartach has a few variants to his mythos. He's known as the Dwarf King and sometimes the blood-sucking chieftain. 
there are arguments that he was the first inspiration for Bram Stoker's vampire Dracula, especially given that Bram Stoker studied in Ireland for a long time. And given his size, his pale complexion and red glowing eyes, Wagner seems to be leaning into that variant of the story rather than the Dwarf King for inspiration. Certainly one need only look at, at Wartok's size here, again, like I said, towering four to five times over the trio, uh, to tell that this is no Dwarf King. That said, both of those tales share in common a terrible, violent king who terrorized his own people and demanded great sacrifices. Or he would take his vengeance upon those that he viewed as having done him wrong. Uh, however, even upon slaying him and burying him standing straight up, the manner befitting his status, Awartak would return time and time again to demand and take blood. I mean, he must not have been impossible to defeat, since the stories hold that he was murdered many times. It's just that he kept coming back, and had to be defeated and buried in a specific way to block his ability to return. Uh, another element that this myth holds in common with vampire lore beyond just sheer bloodlust. For the locals in the area of uh, Awartak's grave is now known as uh, Slagtavartu, Dolmen. I hope I'm saying that right. According to the website Emerald Isle, his grave is a large rock and two smaller rocks under a hawthorn tree. Back in 1997, apparently there were attempts made to clear the land, but workmen who tried to cut down the thorn tree arching across Awartak's grave allegedly had their chainsaw malfunction three times. And while attempting to lift the great stone, a steel chain snapped, cutting the hand of one of the laborers and ominously allowing blood to soak into the ground. Uh, needless to say, I don't think they managed to move it. Perhaps they did. The story didn't tell. Awartak greets the trio with, an, with ominous villain speak before setting a bunch of what I can only describe as floating rabid Chewbacca heads on them. One of these manages to chomp down on Kevin's arm all the way up to his bicep, almost taking the whole damn arm. And we get this panel, this awesome view, of Kevin just flaring up in pure white, surrounded by sparking lightning coming off him. Um, and the bad Chewbacca head is blown away into fragments of scattered hair, and the bat Kevin is wielding just dissolves from the overload of power. But Kevin is then left defenseless for a moment, on the ground, and about to be grabbed by a Wartach, when Miranda steps between the vampiric giant and her father in the guise of a flame-breathing red dragon. But Awartak just knocks her aside, backhands her, dispelling her disguise, sending her flying. And that's all Kevin needs to jump into action, grabs a new bat, and destroys this threshold guardian with just one swing of his bat. Kevin races over to Miranda. She's crumpled on the ground, and picks her up in the heartbreaking full-page last panel of the issue, where he holds his daughter in his arms. The girl is either knocked unconscious or dead, with her face bloodied from the impact of a Wartox attack. And as he has done twice before, once with Edsel, another time with Kirby, Kevin lets out a loud shout of no, and this is... this is the worst. And... 
Wow, I mean, what a place to close this issue. The Fisher King is in the hands of the Gracklethorns. Magda and Hugo are in what looks like a deadly situation with no clear way out of it. And Kevin is holding his unconscious, if not dead, daughter in his arms. And at this point, still apparently, no sign of the Ember Sprite. No sign of the Third Mage. But the Umber Sprite's been known to disappear from the narrative from time to time in this series. No doubt it will reveal itself in issue 15. And that's it. Uh, look, typically at this point of the show, I would have finished my show notes and observations, then I'd go and read some reviews, and then come back and share some of those and some entries from the letter column. But it's, uh, it's just shy of midnight. I'm exhausted. Issue 15 comes out in about three or four days, and I just want to get this recorded and live as soon as possible. So with that in mind, I will share one last email from uh, John Petz, uh, who I've had some communication with. The subject line of this, I think it just came in literally the other day, was Mage the Hero Denied has less than a week for the big finale. Picture picking up this comic in the 80s, and following it all these years. What a strange feeling it'll be to finally get to the end. It doesn't seem possible to wrap it all up in one issue, but I guess we'll know soon enough. I'm sure there'll be some good discussions in your podcast. Any last predictions? Cheers. So, um, yeah, thanks for the vote of confidence, John. I uh, I hope you enjoyed the discussions on this uh, on this episode of the podcast. And yeah, it is a it is a strange feeling finally getting to the end and in some ways it doesn't seem possible to wrap it all up in one issue but as much as it would be great to see mage continue on and on uh it's also going to be really awesome seeing how this thing comes together now as for predictions i have um i've kind of discussed some things about the third mage that i've had some ideas about I've uh, I've taken them up to a certain point, and, and past that, I haven't really wanted to go much further um, on the podcast. I only really have one big prediction. I'm saving that for release a few weeks after the final issue is released. Right or wrong. But I'm waiting until the issue has had a chance to be out there and be read. Um, I know nobody listening to it would necessarily be at risk of being spoiled. They'll have already read things, but I really just want to hold off on, on sharing my thoughts about some things. Uh, either way, right or wrong, it'll be released. I would also like to, uh, I will also likely post some email back and forth between John and myself regarding um, that and some other thoughts as Mage is wrapping up. So if you'd like to be notified when those come out, uh, head over to the site, fill out the short sign up box titled Don't Miss Out on the Next Podcast. It's right under a picture of Kevin, Edsel, and Sean. Just uh, surf a page or two and it will show up. Other than that one prediction, um, I've de- which is just you know kind of playing parlor games with myself, uh, I've decided to just enjoy this ride to the end. Uh, whoever the third mage may be, whatever the resolution to the various mysteries begun in this last series or that have been with us since the beginning, it will be what it will be, and it's it's easy as fans to come to the comics we enjoy with expectations and demands regarding the characters, the writing, the artwork, we feel that they are ours. But frankly, we're just along for the ride, um, especially so with a with a piece like this, you know, when you compare it to 
you know, to to something like a, a Spider-Man or X-Men, etc., that have, you know, years upon years of multiple lines and issues coming out uh, constantly left and right. Um, there's only so much say, you know, none in fact, that we have about a story like this, especially given its autobiographical tone. And, and just as we don't necessarily agree with the things that characters in movies or TV do, or we find them frustrating in their lack of growth or short-sightedness or bad decisions, well, you know, those things happen in comics too. We don't always agree with how our heroes and characters uh, act. I know some people were frustrated with the pace of The Hero Denied, or Kevin's seeming lack of growth since the events that took place in, in Mage 1 and Mage 2. Um, you know, but on reflection, when I was thinking about this during this series, you know, it was my take that those are things that really make him all the more human. Because, hell, it's very rare that somebody learns a lesson just once or learns a lesson and 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 they they never go back they they you know it's all clear and rational and clear cut and moving forward quite frankly that that happens more often in fiction than it does in reality so it's a uh, i find those struggles to make kevin matchstick all the more real his journey is his journey them's the breaks the story is the story buy the ticket take the ride now, I'm not saying to be thoughtless and lack any critical ability or response uh, to this work, much less any other work. I'm just saying that after 30-some years, it's easy to have expectations for a conclusion that may be impossible to satisfy, or that you may find answers or actions, endings that you don't expect or desire. But that's storytelling. You know, there are going to be things, there have been things in this uh, last run that I haven't expected. There were a few things that frustrated me about Kevin's behavior. As I said, I managed to uh, I managed to position and rethink how I how I thought about that. It made me kind of expand uh, expand how I approached the story. Um, there's going to be things about this conclusion um, that I expect are going to be amazing. There are going to be things about this conclusion I expect are going to be sad. Um, that's just storytelling. It's been an excellent ride so far. I'm sure that this conclusion, however the chips may fall, will not disappoint. And I look forward to revisiting this epic again as a whole cloth in years to come. Uh, that's going to be a real neat treat now that the whole thing is pulled together to be able to go back and read it in its entirety and see how that story comes together uh, with the whole piece laid out. Anyways, thanks for listening. Don't forget to join me next time when I'll review the final issue of the Mage Epic, issue number 15 of The Hero Denied. In the meantime, please write in. Stay excellent.